Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Next Generation Innovators, a future women podcast in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Program. Each week we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. I'm joined again by my co-host, Alicia Stevenson. Hi, how are you? Hi, Brooke. It's great to be joining you again. Our guest today is very special. She is the daughter of a self-taught botanist and the goddaughter of a successful farmer. She's always been frustrated by inefficiency and was driven by a desire to fix what she thought was wrong with large-scale farming. So she founded Fluorisat, a data analytics company that combines imagery and farming records to produce recommendations on how to optimise crops. In doing so, she's earned a coveted spot on MIT's Innovators Under 35 list. Anastasia Volkova, welcome to Next Generation Innovators. Hi, thank you for having me. What was the key driver for beginning Fluorisat? Oh, that's such a big question asked so casually. <laughs> I guess the answer is I wanted to fly. They had ended up not a profession, but an aspiration. And the closest substitute to flying is doing aeronautical engineering. If you do aeronautical engineering, you learn about satellites and about the fact that aviation is not good for environment. And when you're a young girl who wants to be good for environment, but has this degree that she needs to do something with and is passionate about software and grew up around agriculture, you tie those things together and you get a Fluorisat. Anastasia, can you give us a quick overview of what Fluorisat does? What are its key commercial offerings? Sure, this is pretty simple. So when you think of farmers and their advisors, agronomists making decisions on the farm, it can be daily, weekly, monthly, annual decisions. You need information to have informed decisions that lead to better outcomes. And this is what Fluorisat provides. We provide software as a service solution subscription to information and reports on how your crops are performing and decision support tools as to what can you do better? How much fertilizer do your crop needs? How are they looking from the perspective of yield potential? What is the optimal uh, timing and order in which you should harvest your fields? And we do it not just for farmers and agronomists, but for global companies that process foods and are behind the consumer packaged goods brands that are household names. So we really do it on the global scale, but it always comes down to the individual farmer field and scales back up to country scale food production. And so how were you initially exposed to the issue of wastage in agriculture? Because that's quite niche, isn't it? No, absolutely. It's not like you wake up and suddenly you see fertilizer flowing down the river uh, into the (laughs) lake. I came about this issue actually when I came to Australia to do my PhD and I realized that there is this shortage of water and with shortage of water comes stress around what you can grow and what you can't grow. And I was curious to find out where did the rest go? Where did that water go and how did people use it? And it turned out that sometimes when there's a really good year and it rains a lot, you get a lot of water. But then what you have problems with is fertilizer. And Australia has the Great Barrier Reef, 
and people are quite concerned about water with the rain falling onto the field and then washing the chemical fertilizers off. That was quite a revelation. And then I want to talk to an agronomist, to the farmer, about the numbers involved, that seed is a large part of the cost, but then equally so water and fertilizer are a massive part of the cost. So if you can grow more plants with less resources, including land, like if there can be fewer hectares of land involved in production of ton of, of wheat, like that's a great environmental outcome. And it all ends up being a big problem of optimization. Do you know what always strikes me as so amazing about the innovation of things like this? And we've had a few people on our season already that have blown me away in a very similar style, Anastasia, is just how simple the solution is. I know it's not simple not to take anything away from the fabulous startup. You're nodding and smiling, but it's, it is, is uh, the, the problem is so obvious. The solution of wastage is so obvious and to look to do something to fix that is so simple. You founded Fluorosat whilst you were writing your PhD. And from all accounts, what we've read is that you've had a very understanding professor. I'm interested in how you, because a lot of people would wait until they finished their PhD to do something of such mammoth proportions. How did you balance the real demands on your time in starting Fluorosat? can't wait. That's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Impatience, Hmm. pure impatience. I think I'm just very, uh, I'd say it's, Openly, I'm frustrated by inefficiency in the world. And I grew up with this weird understanding that the world should be the way that I think is the most efficient ways. I remember stopping at the traffic lights when I was a little kid and I'm like, mom, how do you know the the, the system? How does it know that I'm here so it will turn on the green light to let me uh, cross the road? I was like, it's never gonna know it's automated. Like, it's not about you, it's about the system. And that stroke me from that very young age. And I'm like, no, the system should know what's happening. And this is kind of this kind of, this, this solution in agriculture of you need to know what's happening so you can react to it and implement a solution that is, is a good one. But back to your question of how do you start something like this when you're in your PhD? I started my PhD and I knew that that was satisfyingly part of my ambition, my interest in really achieving some level of understanding in a particular field that I was really curious about. And this is why you would do a PhD, but I knew that that was not my calling. I'm not a researcher at heart. I'm too impatient to see the impact of whatever I'm working on to the point where I see business as a best alternative or best, not even alternative, extension of research. So, you know, after research and development comes commercialization. And this is what Pluricide is specializing in. We take the best of agricultural research, put it in the right place in the workflow that makes sense for people and help them make better informed decisions because of that commercialization piece is done right. Not like research is facing the the end user. That, That marriage never happens. It doesn't go well if it does. And you've been able to access quite an impressive amount of funding since you began, over uh, $4.6 million that we could initially see. So for many startups, this is, I guess, a key driver to success. Can you break down the sources for funding and the requirements from the business for that? And did accessing funding change the way that you ran the business? And if so, how? That's a great question. I wouldn't call it an impressive amount of funding. 
um, based on the impressive ambitions we have. It's never enough to actually build what you want to build, but it's in stages. So speaking about funding, we really should look at it in stages. And if there are startup founders or people who want to understand, how do you just randomly come by four and a half million on the street? Well, you just work towards it in steps and your previous recognition or credibility that earned you first pool of money can be used to earn your second pool of money. And then you kind of roll it as a snowball. Um, so originally we had the customers to commit a small amount of um, money that was put into the matching grant, but by the Jobs for New South Wales, it, it's called an MVP grant. Uh, many startups know about it. It's 25K uh, matched. So you get 50 out of it because the government gives you the other half. And then we build the first MVP that we went for the second grant. Um, and then by the time we were applying for the accelerating commercialization grant from federal government in Australia, we already uh, had the understanding that this was a real problem in the industry, that people were ready to pay for it, that our solution was kind of in the right direction. And this is where we started seeking venture funding. And the first round was just under 1 million. And we attracted the investors who I wanted to see as mentors on the board, as observers and directors on the board. And from there, business grew. There's traction and milestones that you need to meet for every next round of funding to be able to raise it. And it's uh, not art, it's science. There is metrics. The whole industry is really driven around metrics for, say, SaaS businesses, software as a service businesses in a particular industry. And you can access those metrics and understand what are the right ones for you, given that Florida is in agriculture. And we are a so-called deep tech company. We have a lot of science and research done internally, as well as with partners. This means that it takes us longer to incubate our products, but they're more impactful long-term. So our metrics are adjusted to that, but they're still industry standard-ish metrics. So that's how you would raise funding. You would look at those stages and you would get to your next stage with the view onto the one after and so on and so forth. I have a question that we ask a lot of our millennial startup founders, which we were talking about before, which is supremely innovative and inspiring people are also really expected to be empathetic and quintessentially inspiring and understanding leaders within their organization. So I'm always interested to know, was your leadership style something that you mindfully crafted or did it happen organically? My best friend says that I'm really empathetic and I'm super self-aware. I think that's the only thing I can claim. I'm quite self-aware. I think that really helps a leader to know what you're objectively kind of good at and what you're objectively not so good at. And it takes humbleness to know that you're not knees, bees and uh, center of the world and to know that you can get things done only by building the right team around you. And I think I was fortunate enough to have the people join me who saw the potential of my idea and my desire and ability to execute. But with each of those people joining me on the Florisat journey, I'm particularly referring to Florisat team and particularly the leadership team. They have really formed the way that I think of my role as a, as a leader. I can, like, there's a book I can pick up from my table. It's called The Great CEO Within. I'm, I'm reading it right now and trying to understand how to become better for them because they've trusted me with their time and their careers. And I think we're on a phenomenal journey that will make a big impact and they should be proud of what they're doing. 
but I also need to make their day-to-day joyful experience of being a part of something bigger. And this doesn't happen naturally because as a, as a founder, you're kind of all obsessed about getting something done. It's all about the product. But the more you grow the business around the product, the more you understand that the business and the world domination of companies comes from its people and the culture. And the people is where the, the hard part, and this is where you learn to, to be the right type of leader. I think what helped me is to understand who were the wrong people around me. Sometimes it happens that you hire someone and they've pitched to you to do this particular thing and to accomplish this particular objective and to build, bring particular skills to your team, but you've seen this just not happening. And I think not having tolerance for the level of performance that you are not inspired by, mm-hmm. it's a very important skill for the leader, discerning what good looks like. You're considered to be, and rightly so, I might add, quite an exceptional role model for young women in STEM. What advice uh, do you have for other young women who are seeking to follow in your footsteps? Not to think that this is some kind of miracle and not to think that they can't do it. So I I think the reason why we're talking is because I want to inspire them. The reason I'm where we're currently having this conversation is because I believe if someone told me that just a regular Ukrainian girl that had some kind of ambition could do it, I would want every girl who's doubting what she can do to hear it. But I think the more women can hear and be reassured that it's all about just trying and doing and finding what's right for you and what are your special skills that you can add and not being afraid of something that you don't understand just because you don't understand it. I think that's all I can say that's so true and so hard to do, but I think there's nothing apart from that that really leads to any kind of perceived success. It's really interesting, Anastasia, on that note, because before we were having a bit of a chat about you became an engineer uh, and your parents were engineers, and there's a story in that, but your parents never self-described or self-identified as engineers. And in fact, in choosing your role, you also never identified it with being a quote-unquote engineer, like the labelling wasn't there. Can you tell us that story? Sure, it's a nice, fascinating story, and I still don't understand how it happened, but probably because uh, English is not my first language, and so there were other ways of describing someone's roles in the family that obscured that word from me. So I grew up with Granny being a teacher. Um, my mother I studied electrical engineering and taught electrical engineering, but by the time that I was at the age at which I was comprehending things, she was already working in the mayor's office as one of the managers. And my granddad was, he was managing one of the civil engineering offices in in the town that I grew up with. And so you hear that two of the people who were instrumental to raising me technically had engineering as education and worked in engineering or had positions in engineering when I was growing up. But this was not what I was hearing. I heard that the titles of their positions were managing of this and that. And, and it's more about the level at which they worked rather than the department in which they worked. And what happened then is when I was applying for different specializations in uni, I picked control systems faculty at the aviation university because they offered dual degree in English. And I was so excited about that. I understood something about programming early on and loved and wanted to do it more. And so when I got admitted to my bachelor's, I got home and mom told me, great, congratulations, another engineer in our family. And I said, what do you mean? Like, who, who's engineer? Me? 
wait a minute, who is the other engineers in our family? What do you mean? It was so shocking for me that day that my entire growing up was getting to that point. And at no point I stopped and thought, okay, this is STEM or STEAM or however you want to call it. Mm. This is about engineering. It's just about, here's this thing about programming and geometry that I like and understand. And I'm just going to join the faculty when they use those types of principles in creating something I want to learn about. Isn't that amazing mm. how if it's just allowed to be organic and it's unlabeled and it's an unbiased pathway, it's just, it's, it's an so interesting thought. It's so much easier to accept. It's so much easier to accept. Like if you just don't put labels on it, like you don't have to be a grand scientist if you understand something about physics. You don't have to take on these labels. You just need to pursue what seems interesting and a little bit challenging. Do you feel, especially when you came to Australia, that being a woman in STEM added some description of pressure then? Absolutely. Like this is just not something that you grow up with in Europe. And also by definition, Europe has a ton of biases. And one of our, my favorite biases that we have is that women are smart in STEM. <laughs> How amazing. Oh, the well, Europeans. Think... <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The Entrepreneurs Program can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs Program can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 13 28 46. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn, and lead. There's a price point to suit all budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where our guest today is Anastasia Volkova from Fluorosat. So you participated in the Oz Industry Entrepreneurs Program. They sponsor our podcast. Can you run us through the program as you experienced it and how you came across it to begin with? It sounds like a, a great platform for young people. I'm so glad that they're sponsoring you. And seriously, like you wouldn't get a word that's not coming out of my mind directly. And I absolutely love that program. I told you that that was one of the grants we got, Accelerating Commercialization. Mm -hmm. This is under the umbrella of Entrepreneurs Program. And I think without that grant, we wouldn't have been successful in getting the product where it needed to be to raise venture funding. That's one, which is very important. Second thing that was extremely important, we got something that was way beyond the value of money. We got an advisor assigned to us and I just got to love her to bits. It's Topaz Conway and everyone deserves to know that she's amazing. And the way that she got me and a few other companies through that program is really about coaching how to be a CEO of a VC company because that's the knowledge that she had. She understood it from the founder and operator side of starting and running businesses. And she understands it from the perspective of the investor side of what are the investors looking for when they're trying to evaluate whether your company is good enough to give you money in the next round. And without that program, we wouldn't have one, the funding to actually do it, two, the structure, because it comes with a budget with a requirement for you to write the milestones and teaches you to project forward. 
this is something that every startup has to do. Every startup founder and CEO needs to understand how to do, because if you're taking money and you're promising to bring the outcomes back, what are those outcomes and how are you building the plan to bridge the point where you currently are to that future that you're promising? And this was just a wonderful experience and getting that support also meant that our technology was acknowledged as something that government and the industry needs to care about that this was good enough to be supported as a deep tech innovation that would go on to make a difference. I'm very interested along the lines when all this was happening and you were getting funding. I have a very simple question around the growth being, at what points did you bring on key and critical roles? You were talking about your team before. And in that vein, who were the first three really critical hires and why did you choose those roles? Right. Well, you're making it sound like it's all very thought through. Life is very organic. And uh, one of the my favorite women is my product manager. And yes, I was, I was stalking people on LinkedIn and, and I knew what the roles were that I needed to hire for, but I couldn't really just get anyone into that seat and call them that. Like you can't just give titles to people who are willing to work with you at that early stage because not all of those people will be right for your business and for your culture and for the vision that you have. And you have to accept that you will build it as stepping stones and you're a stepping stone for their career and they're a stepping stone for your business. But when my product manager, I remember that day like it was yesterday, that after I, I called her into the office, that was her interview and when she came in and i understood that she's an agronomist and she understands how the decision support systems work after we have like an exchange of 10 sentences and i literally pull up a product of that current version on my screen in the browser and tell her tell me everything's wrong with it like just tell me what would you do with it and she starts trying to interact with it as an agronomist and given me ideas about what she feels is wrong and, and right. And she had part of the experience that was necessary for the role, but not all of it, but she showed me the right intuition for those are the things that I knew that she confirmed. Additional things were the thoughts that she brought that I didn't have. And I generally saw that we were definitely aligned on the mission and vision for the product. And she had something very strong to complement. Because I think one of the important things whenever you are choosing the people to come to your team, please don't make them the copies of yourself. This is such a waste of time. They, they need to add. They need to be different. They need to have a perspective. And I think I've only asked the people who were repeating what I was saying to ever leave my company because that's mm. just so hard to handle. If someone does not have their own contribution if something doesn't if someone doesn't have their vision interpretation of what their contribution is it's just not impossible to inhale that in the, into who they are and just to extend the answer a little bit here the other roles happened kind of organically as well i met my head of bd kind of in the market working with her she was in a different partner company and she was looking for the next big stepstone in her career and she took on the job that was morphing and shaping and growing her. And she embraces the growth part of the business like no one else now and is really forging the, the new way for the growth of our company. Our CTO is absolutely mind-blowingly fantastic. And we got him as an introduction from one of our investors. But he was introduced at the point where we raised our last round. Because before, I believe he wouldn't even looked at a startup that was so small, so early stage. But when we formed this more steady state in the product, in the investment, in the roadmap, 
we could attract this person to transform us and take us to the next level of the data crunching decision support people and planet supporting machine that we need to be. We're still on the journey of getting there. But this is how you can think about roles. It's, of course, you need your first hires, but sometimes you don't need you don't meet all the right people and you want to meet them, of course, but it's going to happen organically and you just need to know what's actually good enough and who's not good enough for what you want to build. That's a very important point, you know, hiring bias, like you say, but then also knowing when to exit people quickly if you need to. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's just a cultural problem. Um, if your employees are saying that you're tolerating something that you are not okay with and that propagates across the organization this sends just such a strong negative signal to everyone else because they're not in your head they don't know how you're treating or evaluating the current situation they're seeing what's happening and they're seeing that that's allowed is that the same sort of approach that you take to um to managing stakeholder relationships as well because you've got so many from um, private to, to government you know, is that approach around, you know, central idea is the same, but everyone's approach is different and you bring people in organically. Is that the same sort of thing that you do when you're managing those relationships as well? It's actually true. Yeah. I think we have the vision and the story and the end game in mind. And we're seeing, okay, well, for me personally, as a CEO, as a founder, what limitations do I have of what new challenges I'm taking on, I would like to take on in the next stage of the startup growth. What are some of the things that we need from the funding perspective or from the market traction perspective. So those will be the decisions around who do we bring as an independent board director, which market do we go into, or where is the funding that we would like to seek to strategically position ourselves aligned with the people who see the world the same way and can help with the creation of, of that future. So I think if you are compromising on any of these things, it'll be extremely difficult to bring cohesion into the business, its culture, and actually achieve the impact. So you've managed to internationalise your business quite successfully. Can you walk us through some of the barriers that you've faced in doing that? Certainly. I think internationalisation of the business comes with complexity of different countries, cultures, regulations, management standards. No country is like the other country, even if they're small countries and they're bordering uh, each other. So if you're looking at Fluorosat products in Australia and in New Zealand, they are different. Our hit product in New Zealand is different from our hit product in Australia. And when you're taking Fluorosense, our analytics engine, and how it works in the US, in Latin America, it's the same product and it's the same logic that applies but there are additional features or additional level of granularity that people in some geographies might like or given that we're a decision support system there might be different decisions that they're placing more weight on and so that brings just so many more layers of complexity but it also is extremely rewarding because you don't feel like you're developing something for a small cohort of people in a relatively constrained market. You're really building a global solution that just has to handle it. And that's a very exciting challenge to be up for. Anastasia, I have two questions uh, to end for you. I'd like to know what is next for Fluorosat, but also we end all of our podcasts by asking our guests, what's the one piece of advice that you would give someone wanting to start or has recently started a new business venture? So the first question is, what's next for us? And I'm extremely excited about 
the level of awareness to customers that COVID brought into the supply chains in agriculture and most importantly, climate change. So I'm excited to actually unveil some of the products that Fluorosat has been working on for a while and unveil some of the partnerships that we've been working on for a while that will actually target the space of sustainability verification, helping consumer packaged goods brands and food processors to actually get better and high quality and trusted information about how the food is produced and if the sustainability practices are maintained in a way that allows them to make those claims to consumers and for consumers to pass the value back to farmers for maintaining their land value and honoring the environment that they're managing. So that's really exciting things that I'm looking forward to uh, in 2021. And one piece of advice, people often say this, and it might sound very obvious and basic, but I would just say, seek advice, be coachable, seek advice. And there's so many people who would be happy to help you feel not alone with that problem that you're facing or share the experience of the next stage of the business in which they're in. And probably the best people to give that advice would be the people who are one or two steps further than you are in that entrepreneurial journey. And this is exactly how I seek advice myself. Um, so I practice what I preach. I love that. Be coachable. Be coach. That stood out to me too. It kind of goes together with stay humble. Be coachable, stay humble. You don't know what you don't know. And that's your greatest thing to know, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anastasia, thank you so much. I know that your time is at a premium. You are doing amazing things in the universe for the world and for the environment. And it is a privilege to have you on the podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was the final episode of this season of Next Generation Innovators. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as Alicia and I have loved speaking to our incredible guests. Thanks to our partner, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Program and to Fancy Films for producing this podcast. Until next time.